You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Father, we pray that you would speak to us now through your word to impart to us exactly what we need uh, wherever we are in our journey with you, whether we are believers or not yet believers, whether we are feeling weaker in our faith or strong, um, we pray that you would meet us and uh, lead us all just a little closer to yourself. Um, I pray that you would help me to bring some comfort to your people as I preach your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I know some of you are newer to our service this morning, and uh, you may be unaware of what's been happening here in this building. Um, Our church has just moved in at the beginning of February. Uh, We were renting space in King City, and uh, we have enjoyed the last six weeks adjusting to meeting in this place and meeting new friends, building new relationships, and, uh, and, and now we have this new kind of development in our world to adjust to. Um, what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is we've been walking through our mission statement, uh, which is there posted on the wall. Uh, it's we are, and that word are is an acronym for these three parts of our mission statement. We are awed by God, We are revealing Christ. We are expecting the Spirit. And uh, today we are on the third part of our mission statement. We are expecting the Spirit. And uh, the reason why we want to walk through the mission statement and the verses that our leadership team has has chosen to associate with each part of those mission statements is, uh, is so that we would continue to build our church on this solid foundation of the gospel and what that looks like Um, as we seek to become a church that is faithful to Christ and to the witness of the gospel. Uh, For those who have grown up in the church or have some degree of theological knowledge, this part of the mission statement, we are expecting the spirit, might seem a little strange. After all, you know that, that believers already have the spirit. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit permanently and unchangingly. At the moment that God calls us to himself, and gives us the gift of faith in Jesus Christ, God also sends his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to dwell within us forever. He is our comforter, he is our teacher, he is the one who brings meaning and illumination to the word of God as we read it, so that it makes sense and so that we respond to it with faith. And it's only by the Spirit's work that we can not only become Christians, but continue to live the Christian life as the Holy Spirit provides for us what we need to live godly lives. And so if we already have the Spirit, then why would we say that we are still expecting the Spirit? The answer is that there is a difference between having the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit, between the indwelling of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. Every Christian is indwelt by the Spirit, but not every Christian is filled with the Spirit. And even those Christians who may be filled with the Spirit at some point in their spiritual journeys, that may not always be the case. Now, Pastor Tim, who's not here this morning, 
um, has often used a helpful analogy. He says that, that being indwelt by the Spirit is like putting your fist in a glove. It's, it's in there, but there's only so much that you can do with your hand. That changes when your fingers spread into the glove. And that, that's what happens when you are filled with the Spirit. You become empowered to do things that you couldn't do before. That's what we mean when we say that we are expecting the Spirit. We're not expecting the Spirit as if he's out there and we're waiting for him to come in here. No, that the Spirit is already in here and we are asking and we are expecting for more of the Spirit to fill us so that we would be able to do what God has called us to do with greater effectiveness. Now this reality is clear in the verse that we've chosen for this part of our mission statement. It's Acts 4, verse 31. It says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the verse that we're gonna spend uh, our morning together uh, drawing our attention to, studying and assessing and applying to our lives. One of the things that I've I've loved about this kind of mini-series in our Gospel Foundation series on our mission statement is it's given us an opportunity to sample different genres and different parts of the Bible. You remember if you were here a couple weeks ago when we were looking at the first verse, we are awed by God from the book of Job, Job 26, verse 14. Uh, That's a verse taken from the Old Testament in a book that is categorized or characterized by poetic poetic wisdom literature. It's meant to be read poetically, and it's meant to impart wisdom to how we live our lives. Last Sunday, we looked at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. It's a theological letter. It's a a letter that Paul wrote to a church that's full of theological meaning and substance, and you need to interpret it within its logical context. Today, as we turn our attention to the book of Acts, we need to remember what this is, what genre this is. It is a book of history. It is a historical narrative. It is a faithful recounting of the actual words and deeds of the early church. And therefore, as we read it as a continuation of that church, we are meant to uh, see this as a model for what we want to do and, we want, and what we want to become um, as we seek to be faithful just as the early church was faithful 2,000 years ago. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts Chapter four, if you have a Bible, we'll be looking a little bit at the context. If you don't have a Bible, um, any verse that I'll be referencing is, uh, will be print, uh, broadcast on the slides, and Acts 4, verse 31 is printed in your bulletin. So we're gonna address this verse in three parts. First, the spirit and prayer. Second, the spirit and believers. And third, the spirit and the word. The spirit and prayer, the spirit and believers, the spirit and the word. So our verse today has three main parts. If you look at it, it's a pretty straightforward verse. Um, Three main parts with each part leading to the next part. The first part is when they had prayed. It begins with prayer. That leads to they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Prayer leads to the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then the filling of the Holy Spirit leads to the third part, which is they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. If you're a Christian, that is what you want. You want to be able to speak the word of God with boldness. Um, I was praying together with a couple uh, men a couple weeks ago at our prayer meeting, 
and Pastor Tim was walking us through different areas that we wanted to pray for ourselves. Uh, One of them was boldness, and all of us in that little group chose that as what we wanted more of in our lives, including myself. We wanted more boldness to speak the word of God because it is hard to speak the word of God boldly when the word of God can be so controversial and even offensive to the culture around us. But if we want boldness, we need the spirit. And if we want the spirit, then we need to pray. That's the structure of our verse. It all starts with prayer. But you'll notice it wasn't just any prayer. This verse is talking about corporate prayer, talking about a prayer meeting when believers got together to pray together. It was a meeting in which many, if not all, of the early church was together to pray. Now, if you read the context going back all the way to Acts chapter three, uh, you'll see that that the occasion for their prayer meeting was persecution. Peter and John had just been released from prison and threatened by the Jewish leaders, not because they had done anything offensive or said anything that was offensive, but because they had healed, in the name of Jesus Christ, a man who was born lame. He couldn't walk. Now, this was quite the spectacle because this lame man was well-known in Jerusalem. Every day, it says, uh, back in Acts chapter three, people would lay him at the temple gate called Beautiful, where he would sit there all day long and beg for money. He couldn't provide for himself, he couldn't work, he was dependent on the uh, offerings and and the, the mercy of other people. He was a fixture of the temple. He was a common sight to all who would go to the temple to worship. Uh, They would expect to see this man begging. But now, here he was, walking and even jumping and praising God, telling everyone that he had been healed in Jesus' name by these two men called Peter and John, two ordinary, uneducated fishermen. So as the news spread, the people of Jerusalem gather around Peter and John. And Peter seizes opportunity, uh, this opportunity to preach the gospel. He testifies to the people who gather that Jesus, he died, Jesus rose from the dead, and Jesus would come again. And all of this is rooted not just in this historical moment, but prophesied in the Old Testament. If they believe this, Peter says, if they repented of their sins and believed that Jesus died for their sins, God would forgive them, and he would turn them from their wicked ways. Now, all of that happened in chapter three. And then in chapter four, we are told this. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, that, is, that, that right there is the explanation for why Peter and John were imprisoned. They were uh, annoying people who had power. Peter and John were taken from their friends, from their church, from their families, and thrown into a cell because they had rubbed the wrong people the wrong way. Now, this may sound like something that just happens um, in a kind of war-torn area of the world or an ancient time in the world, but, but really we can say, we can see examples of that happening already, right now. You know, I, I, I want to be reminded, and I want to remind you that as much as the coronavirus is dominating the news cycle, 
This is not the only thing that's happening in the world. I'm going to tell you a couple of stories of how I see this trend of, of Christians being annoying to our culture around us, leading to significant repercussions. Many of you know that I used to, before I became a pastor, I used to practice law. I was a criminal defense lawyer. And uh, when I first started, my closest friend in, um, in the legal profession, he was a Catholic man, he represented a woman named Linda Gibbons. Some of you may know who she is. Linda is a Christian woman. She's over 70 years old. And she has spent over 10 years of her life in jail. And you may be wondering, what, what did she do to spend 10 years of her life in jail as an elderly senior woman? She's a Christian woman. She is a faithful believer. She is a grandmother. What did she do to deserve 10 years in jail? Usually when you think about people who spend 10 years in jail, you're talking about drug traffickers. You're talking about those who have committed manslaughter. You're talking about repeat offenders. She is a, a lovely Christian woman. What did she do? Well, she would walk silently up and down a sidewalk in downtown Toronto in front of an abortion clinic. And she would carry a sign with, with a little baby boy on it and the message that said, why mom when I have so much love to give? And she would walk silently up and down that sidewalk being willing to speak with anyone who approached her or to be ignored by anyone who didn't want to speak with her. She was not loud and aggressive. She was not holding up graphic signs. She was not forcing herself on anyone. She was not obstructing anyone's way. She just wanted people to know that abortion doesn't have to be the only option. But for that, she has been arrested, charged, convicted, and sentenced multiple times to the point that she has spent over 10 years of her life in jail. Now, there was a law in place that said that she could not do that. She could not be in this vicinity of the abortion clinic um, uh, trying to give information to people who are heading into the clinic. And that's why the police had the power to arrest her and to send her to jail. But the question is, did that law have to exist? And if it did have to exist, did it have to exist to that extent? Do we really need a law that completely prohibits people like Linda Gibbons, who can, do, who can uh, express her opinions and engage with people who are willing to talk to her in a non-threatening, non-violent way? Well, in my view, and I hope that you agree with me, the answer is no. But that's what the law says. And in fact, since then, uh, a couple years ago, uh, the Ontario government has expanded that what, what we call bubble zone laws to not just apply to that clinic, but to every place where um, abortions are done in our province. And that is because we live in a culture that isn't just interested in punishing what is dangerous. We have come to the point where we are willing to punish what is annoying. And people like Linda Gibbons have to suffer for it. It's only a matter of time before that kind of precedent extends to other things. Um, and you can imagine the kinds of contexts that uh, would be the case. You know, we think about the emerging discussions um, that are banning um, so called conversion therapy, uh, applying to those who are same sex attracted or those who have gender confusion. 
And uh, I, think, I think a lot of the practices that are done when you're talking about uh, conversion therapy should be banned. But the language that the federal government is talking about right now um, would extend far beyond uh, some of these controversial practices. The language that's being used is any, any attempts to convince someone that they, are, uh, that they are their biological sex or that um, God had made them for a relationship with someone of the opposite sex, um, that could not only be illegal, it could be criminalized. Those are the kinds of conversations that are happening right now. It wouldn't, not, it wouldn't just apply to pastors speaking to congregations. You know, people who are teaching what the Bible says. Uh, it could very much apply to me one day if this does become law, but it would also become to parents, uh, it, w- it would also begin to apply to parents who are talking to their children or friends who are talking to their friends. Not because the way that we speak about it is dangerous or wrong, but because it's annoying. There are dangerous ways of talking about this. You know, as Christians, we condemn any speech that demeans or undermines the the inherent value of any human being, even those who are very different from us, who believe very different things. But but this law would, would apply to ban even loving, gracious, reasonable conversation. We are closer to the early church than we realize, and we are getting closer every year. And as we do, we must imitate what the early church did. We must pray. You think about all the the things that the early church could have done. They could have organized a violent revolution. You know, their leaders, Peter and John, two of their main leaders in the early church were imprisoned unjustly. What could they have done? They could have gathered weapons and, you know, fought to the death and, and that would have been the end of the early church. Or they could have tried to gain political power, to think strategically about how to get people into the Caesar's household. Or they could have retreated. They could have said, okay, good riddance. If you don't want us, then we don't want you. And they could have retreated into little religious communes and stopped worrying about anyone other than themselves. But instead of any of those things, the one thing they chose to do was to pray. And to pray for boldness, to be faithful to continue to bear witness to the life-saving, life-transforming news of the gospel. They prayed desperately, they prayed corporately, they prayed theologically. You know, if you read through the prayer in chapter four, you'll see that their prayer begins with this theological reflection on this one theme, this one theme of the sovereignty of God. In his commentary on Acts, scholar Daryl Bach writes, in a situation that includes a power play by the leadership against the community, the prayer begins with an assertion of God's absolute sovereignty. And that's because that is the truth that they needed. They needed a reminder that, that even though it appeared that the Jewish leaders were the ones who were in control, that they were the ones calling the shots, Ultimately, God was the one who was in control. God made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He reigns over all, and that includes the princes who were plotting against him. He even reigns over them in such a way that all of their plotting, all of their persecution is being wielded in the hand of God to accomplish his plans. You know, the sovereignty of God 
really was a core doctrine in the life of the early church because they saw it displayed so fully and beautifully in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. The early Christians knew and believed this truth with all their hearts because they saw it on display on the cross. If you read through the prayer in Acts chapter four, they say, well, Herod and Pontius Pilate, yes, they crucified the Lord Jesus, but all along they were only doing whatever God's hand and God's plans had predestined to take place. The early church knew that God was in control and that nothing happens except through him and by his will. And do we not need that truth in times like this when it seems like this virus has taken control of our world? We need to return to a settled conviction about the sovereignty of God. The early church quoted Psalm 2, a uh, striking image of God's absolute power over all creation. Psalm 2 says this, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs at those who plot against him. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The early church knew that the king has been set on God's holy hill, King Jesus himself. He reigns over all. And the early church responded to that truth that King Jesus reigns, not by sitting on their hands and doing nothing and saying, well, Jesus will do everything. God's in control and therefore we don't have to do anything. That's a gross misapplication of the doctrine of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is not meant to lead God's people to be passive. It's meant to lead God's people to be active in faith, knowing that the God who is sovereign stands behind what we are doing. And what the early church chose to do in response to the doctrine of God's sovereignty was to pray. They prayed. People only pray when they know that their prayers are gonna make a difference. And they only know that their prayers are gonna make a difference if they know that the one that they're praying for, or praying to, can make a difference if he has the ability and the willingness to intervene. The early church believed that. And the question for us is, do we believe that? Will we pray? How did God answer their prayers? That's the next question we need to ask. How did God respond to their intercession before him? Well, Acts 4 verse 31 says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. God answers their prayers by filling them with the Holy Spirit. That's what we're gonna look at now as we transition to our second point, the Spirit and believers. Now, if you've read the book of Acts, you'll know that this isn't the first time that this phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, is used in the book of Acts. It's actually the third instance of the phrase being used because this isn't the first time in the book of Acts where believers are filled with the Spirit. The second time was actually in Acts 4, verse 8, early on in the chapter that we're looking at where it says that Peter, as he's addressing the Jewish leaders who have just released him from prison, was filled with the Holy Spirit and given boldness to testify to the gospel. The first time um, that this phrase is used, filled with the Holy Spirit, actually happened back in Acts chapter 2. And many of you will probably know this. It was on the day of Pentecost 
when the disciples are gathered together where they were likely praying and the Holy Spirit suddenly comes upon them like a mighty rushing wind um, appearing in divided tongues of fire. And Acts 2 verse 4 says this, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, that is, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, we need to recognize that the filling of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 was very different than the filling of the Spirit that we see in Acts chapter 4. It was also much more significant, the one in Acts chapter 2, because that one, that filling of the Spirit, signaled the beginning of a new era in salvation history, it's, it signaled the era of the Holy Spirit. We know that because in his Pentecost sermon, right after the early church is filled with the Spirit and they start speaking in languages that uh, are understood by the various uh, people who are gathered in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches a sermon and he says that this event is the fulfillment of a prophecy in Joel chapter two. He says this, He quotes uh, Joel chapter two, which says, in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So what's happening in Acts chapter two is the spirit is being poured out on believers in fulfillment of Joel chapter two. The spirit is being poured out for the very first time. And once the spirit was poured out, they were filled with a boldness that equipped them with new gifts and enabled them to bear witness to the risen Christ. Now here's the question. If the Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter two, why did the Spirit have to be poured out again in Acts chapter four? This is where the glove analogy is so helpful. When the Spirit was first poured out in Acts chapter two, it was as if the hand entered the glove for the first time and entered in such a way that the fingers filled the glove and uh, the Spirit was, was working in and through the lives of believers as he was meant to. But over time, the hand kind of shrunk into a fist, and the boldness of the church began to shrink with it. And that is why the early church felt the need to pray for more, for more boldness, to pray for the filling of the Spirit. And, and in response, God answers by filling them again with the Spirit in Acts chapter 4. The fingers of the hand stretched out once again so that they would once again function with the power and the boldness that the Spirit first gave at Pentecost. Now this is one of the ways that we can characterize what the Christian life is meant to look like. It's a process of continually being filled with the Spirit. And that's not because the Spirit leaves us. The Spirit never leaves the life of the one who is truly A Christian, the Spirit regenerates you and then you are sealed with the Spirit for eternity. But all of us will go through seasons when the Spirit's presence and the Spirit's power aren't as tangible as they are meant to be. There are many reasons for this. Sometimes it's our sin. Sometimes our sin leads to Uh, the Spirit uh, retreating from filling us. An example here is in Ephesians 4, verse 30, Paul says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If you read the context there around Ephesians 4, verse 30, you'll see that what Paul is talking about is sin. Sin grieves the Spirit. 
The Spirit is grieved when we sin in such a way that we we do not repent and we do not turn to the Lord for forgiveness and for sanctification. And so we grieve the Spirit when we don't forgive people who have wronged us. We grieve the Spirit when hurtful words are, are coming out of our mouths and tearing other people down. We grieve the spirit when we have unrighteous, self-righteous anger towards the people who are around us. And when we grieve the spirit, the spirit's power dries up in our lives. And we might think that that is punishment, but it is really a gift because it reminds us that we are not right with God. When the Spirit distances himself from us, it's meant to drive us to our knees in repentance so that what has grieved the Spirit, what is causing harm to ourselves and to others, would be put to an end. And we would experience the presence and power of the Spirit once more. We can also grieve the Spirit with our doubts. We grieve the Spirit with our sins and we can grieve the Spirit with our doubts. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, Paul says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. Now there's a lot I could say about this verse, particularly about what prophecies are, but this isn't really the time for it. For now I think we can all agree that at the very least, prophecies refer to the word, to to the Bible, to God's word. When, When we respond to God's word with a dismissive attitude, You know, we're going through a hard time and someone shares a verse with us or reads a passage of scripture with us and we say, oh, I already know that. That doesn't work for me. We are despising the word. And when we despise the word, we are quenching the spirit because the spirit works through the word. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter six, we quench the spirit by our doubts. We grieve the spirit with our sin both diminish our experience of the Spirit's power. Now this reminds us that the Spirit is not merely a power for us to harness. He is a person to be worshiped. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit has a will and a personality. He is not like the force in Star Wars, where if you get enough training, And if you are strong enough kind of in your force powers, you can wield it regardless of what's kind of going on in your life. He is not the force. He is the third person of the Trinity. And that means that there are things that the Spirit loves and there are things that the Spirit hates. And when we indulge in the things that the Spirit hates, he removes himself from us so that we would cease to do that. And that's why verses like Acts 4, verse 31 are so important and even comforting for us. They exist to remind us that as much as we may grieve the spirit by our sin, as much as we may quench the spirit by our doubts, we can always be filled again. There is always another filling if we would pray and if we would repent and if we would seek the Lord. I love how the verse emphasizes this when it says, They were all, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, not just some, not just the person who was leading the prayers, not just the apostles, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. They they were praying collectively, 
But the, the benefits of their prayers were distributed individually. As they prayed, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Their corporate prayers were resulting in the personal power and presence of the Spirit for each and every one of the believers who were there. And that is something that we should all want. You know, if you are a Christian, you should want to be filled with the Spirit. Because as we saw last Sunday, it's the Spirit who sanctifies us. It's the Spirit who makes us more like Jesus. It's the Spirit who reveals the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to us. It's the Spirit who comforts us. It's the Spirit who teaches you and reveals the glories of the gospel to you. And Acts 4 verse 31 tells us that one of the ways that God has chosen to pour out his Spirit is through the means of corporate prayer. The Spirit comes when his people pray. There is a direct relationship between the strength of a church's prayer meetings and and the strength of a church's experience of the Spirit's power. And so if we are to be truly a church that is expecting the Spirit, we need to be a church that is praying together. If we do, marvelous things will happen in our church as I believe they already have been. That includes the the fulfillment of the rest of our mission statement. The only way that we can grow in being awed by God and revealing Christ is if the Spirit is working among us. And as this verse in Acts 4 reminds us, we will also grow in boldness. The Spirit sanctifies us and the Spirit deploys us, fully equipped and provisioned to go and speak the word of God with boldness. And that leads to our final point, the Spirit and the Word. Verse 31 says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now these days, I don't know if you've heard this before, it's quite common to draw a distinction between the Word and the Spirit. We can talk about churches that are strong in the Word but not in the Spirit, or vice versa. Well, this church is all about the spirit, but not about the word. Well, Acts 4 verse 31 says that that the word and the spirit were never meant to be separated. They were always meant to function together. A healthy church must have both word and spirit together. In fact, the only way to be a church, listen, the only way for us to be a church that is all about the word is to be a church that is all about the spirit, Because it's the Spirit who gives us the ability to continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. That's what Acts chapter 4 is all about. At a time when the early church may have been tempted to compromise the Word because of persecution, or to water down the proclamation of the gospel because it's offensive, God supplied them with fresh boldness through the Holy Spirit. And that is what enabled them to continue functioning as a faithful church. My friends, if we are to function as a faithful church, we need boldness to proclaim the word of God. Boldness has always been a necessary ingredient to the faithfulness of the church. Because from the very start of the church, as we see in the book of Acts, the word has clashed with the culture around it. You know, we might think or feel that persecution in our day and age against the church is increasing. But, but really, we got it pretty good. 
All right, persecution is what we see in the early church, where in just a few chapters later, after um, chapter four, um, Stephen is stoned to death for his faith. And then James, the brother of John, is killed by the sword. And church history tells us that all of the apostles were executed in brutal ways, except for the apostle John. Persecution has characterized the church throughout its history because its message has always been controversial and offensive. It's a stumbling block. We need boldness. We needed it back then, and we need it now as the truths of the gospel clash with the truths of the world. The church needs boldness, and that means that the church needs the spirit because the spirit is the one who empowers us to teach and preach the word faithfully. I mean, we, we, we read this verse earlier in our scripture reading from, from John chapter 15 where Jesus calls the spirit, what? He calls him the spirit of truth. He's the spirit of truth. And, and what is the greatest truth of all? It is the truth that Jesus Christ is the Lord of heaven and earth who died in our place for our sins. In John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus said, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. I love that about the spirit. The spirit loves to point the attention away from himself and to shine the spotlight on the sun to show the world that, that Jesus Christ is a glorious savior who is worthy of all our worship. He is the spirit who opens our eyes to see that this crucified Messiah died on the cross for our sins so that all who trust in him could be forgiven and reconciled to God. And in order for that to happen, the spirit must move. It is a supernatural act of God. The spirit must move to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The spirit must move to illuminate illuminate the eyes of our hearts so that we would behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And he must move in the lives of ordinary believers like you and me so that we would continue to speak the word of God with boldness. I mean, the testimony of the scriptures is that the spirit bears witness about Christ through our witness about Christ. He uses ordinary means, sinful but redeemed human beings like us, to bear witness to the glory of the Son. And that is why he gives us boldness. This great gift of boldness flows out of the Spirit's great love for the Son. He gives us power because he wants to see the Son exalted to the highest place, to be recognized as having the name that is above every name, so that all the nations and peoples of the earth would worship him and find their greatest satisfaction in him. If we have this power, my friends, we will not fail in this task. But if we do not have this power, there is no way that we can succeed. You know, after his resurrection, Jesus told his disciples to stay in the city until the spirit came upon them. Because without the Spirit, Jesus knew they wouldn't persevere. But with the Spirit, Jesus says in Acts 1 verse 8, but you will receive power, boldness, 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this is why, again, to quote Daryl Bach, he says this, the Spirit is the key to the renewal and mission of God's people. In case you don't know who that scholar is, you know, he's not a charismatic guy. He's not a scholar writing in the Pentecostal tradition. He's actually writing from a very conservative, reserved tradition. And yet, as he studies the book of Acts, he says the spirit, it's the spirit who is the key to the renewal and mission of God's people. You know, there have been many times when I have arrived at church scheduled to preach the word and I have not felt any ounce of boldness in my soul. I may have been ready to teach, but I wasn't really ready to preach. And there's a difference. Preaching comes out of a a heart that is convicted and arrested by the truths of God's word where where you declare it as the life-giving news that it truly is. That it is in the gospel that, that the power of God is present to save But I I don't always feel that. I come out of routine. I come because it's my job. I come because if I don't preach, then a lot of people will be disappointed. But then when I enter our prayer room, just across the foyer there, and begin our time of pre-service prayer, where many of you, the saints, the precious saints, body of Christ, come and pray for me and with me, I feel the Spirit kindling a fire in my soul and a boldness to preach the word. And that is, that is what we need, not just pastors, not just people who stand behind the pulpit, but all of us, because all of us are called, if you are a Christian, all of us are called to bear witness to the resurrected Christ. And the good news in Acts 4, verse 31, is that if we pray together, then all of us, will be filled with the Spirit so that all of us would continue to speak the word of God with boldness. We are awed by God. We are revealing Christ. We are expecting the Spirit. And that is because it is only through the work of the Spirit that the other two are possible. So when you come to the word in your private devotions, Come expecting the spirit to move in your heart. Come expectant to experience the spirit filling you afresh. Come and expect the spirit to illuminate Christ that he would not just be words on a page, but that he would be the most precious treasure that you could ever possess. You can do that simply by praying regularly for the ministry of the Spirit in your life. You know, I've said this a few times, when I, when I begin my prayer time, I follow this acronym, and the first letter in that acronym is S. It's for the Spirit filling. It's for the ministry of the Spirit in my life. I'm regularly praying that the Spirit would do what he loves to do, which to, is to exalt Christ in my life. Let us lead our families to cultivate this same expectation so that even our children are aware of their need for the Spirit. We want to teach them, we want to catechize them, we want to model for them what the Christian life is meant to look like, but we also want them to know that none of it 
will accomplish anything in their lives if the spirit does not move in their lives. Let us teach our children to expect the spirit by showing them that we are expecting the spirit ourselves. I mean, when I am praying with my kids on Saturday evenings, with the younger kids, I give them words and they just kind of parrot it back to me. I often ask them to pray that daddy would be filled with the spirit so that I would be faithful as a herald of the gospel on Sunday morning. We can teach them to expect the spirit. And as we come together as a church, we should come together with the greatest expectation of the spirit's work of all. Because it is when the family of God prays that the spirit of God empowers. If we are to be a church that is all about the word, then we need to be a church that is all about the spirit. And if we are to be a church that is all about the spirit, we need to be a church that is all about prayer. And so let us pray. Let us pray privately. Let us pray corporately. And as we pray, let us wait upon the Lord to fill us anew that we may continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the precious gift of the Holy Spirit. Without him, none of us would be here. We, we pray for more of him. We pray that you would fill us with the Spirit and whatever in our lives, in our church, may be hindering his work through our sins and our doubts, we pray that you would cleanse us from that. That not only in the months to come or the years to come, but for the generations to come, we would be a church that would continue to speak the word of God with boldness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.